Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week, Chelsea, Travis, and I are talking about international religious freedom because the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, better known as the acronym USERF, just released their annual report on the state of this fundamental human right globally. And we're really honored to talk about this report with the chair of USERF, Gail Manchin. Comprised of nine commissioners, USERF is an independent bipartisan federal body that is principally responsible for reviewing the facts and circumstances of violations of religious freedom internationally and making policy recommendations to the President of the United States, Secretary of State, and to Congress. Gail Manchin from West Virginia was appointed to USERF in 2018 by Senator Schumer, where she now serves as chair. Manchin is an educator who has worked in Marion County Schools on the faculty of Fairmont State University and was the director of the university's first community service learning program. From 2005 to 2010, Gail Manchin served as West Virginia's first lady. She was appointed by the governor to serve as a member of the State Board of Education, where she also served as president. She also later served, continuing that passion for education, uh, for one year as West Virginia's cabinet secretary for the Office of Education and the Arts. At the national level, Gail Manchin has been president of the National Association of State Boards of Education. She was appointed by then-Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, to the Federal Improvement for Post-Secondary Education Board in 2010, and she is also a member of the Board of Trustees of the Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. Gail Manchin has spoken at the state and national levels on the challenges of rural education, poverty, and student achievement. She holds a Master's of Arts in Reading and a Bachelor of Arts in Language Arts and Education from West Virginia University and a master's specialization in educational technology leadership from Salem International University. We are thrilled to welcome her to the Capital Conversations Roundtable today. Chair Manchin, thanks for joining Chelsea, Travis, and me today on Capital Conversations. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been uh, an exciting few days with the release of our 2021 annual report, so uh, very nice to join you. Chair Manchin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being with us. All right, so I, I want to start off at the top with a bit of a uh, a bit of a biography question for you and a personal question for you because you're you're someone who's given a lot of time to public service. You're an educator, uh, and uh, you know, reading your bio for the last fifteen or so years, and I'm sure it dates back even before that. You. You have just served on a truly spectacular number of commissions, of boards, seeking to address a whole wide range number of issues uh, before your uh, appointment to USERF. Uh, so I just want to begin as somebody who's had their eye on lots of different societal issues and, and uh, somebody who has served, uh, why religious freedom and why does this issue matter to you that you would lend your time to it now? Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, and, and I think you, in a way, answered the question. I have spent a good part of my life involved in community service, uh, building communities, uh, certainly advocating for education, 
And all of that is to give people a better quality of life. And we're very fortunate in this country. But when Senator Schumer called and asked me if I would be interested in serving on the Commission for International Religious Freedom, I thought, you know, that's our one of our very basic human rights. And certainly um, in advocating all these years for people, children, mothers, families, um, that was just seemed to be a natural that, uh, yes, of course I would defend uh, people's basic right to be able to worship or not worship when, where, how they pleased, and to be able to do that in safety. Uh, so it was quite an honor for me, but it was also quite an education because, again, Jeff, you're right. I had not served on a board or a commission that dealt with religious freedom. I also had not served on a board that dealt with global issues. So it was um, a, a challenge, uh, an education, an enlightening experience, and one that I truly am very grateful that I've had the opportunity to be a part of. So, Chair Manchin, uh, this this issue, international religious freedom, is it is a it's a one of the one of the last standing bipartisan issues um, in a town where uh, and at a time where where bipartisanship uh, can be rare to find. Although we should give a nod. Uh, to your to your husband who has uh, who has done a lot of work on that. It's I just finished reading uh, the James Baker biography, which is called uh, titled "The Man Who Ran Washington." It's a shame that that title is taken to describe uh, the last couple of years, the next couple of years uh, <laughs> of um, of uh, your husband's tenure in the U.S. Senate. But but talk talk to us a little bit about. I mean, you the you surf is a bipartisan commission. Um, talk to us a little, a little bit about that dynamic, how that plays out as a as a USERF commissioner, um, and and maybe give us a couple of reflections on on what we can do to make sure that that this issue remains um, a bipartisan issue. Well, you're absolutely right. Fortunately, when USERF was created by Congress uh, as sort of an extension of the State Department. Uh, we certainly work with the State Department, but not for them. Um, they were wise in deciding that, first of all, the members of the commission would be chosen by leadership. So they that would automatically give you both sides. Um, and then they also uh, put in a couple of other rules, one which whoever serves as the chair of the commission for the year, the vice chair will be of the other party. And then that will alternate every year. And I think that, you know, that might not be necessary that, you know, maybe we would do that on our own, but certainly having those guidelines uh, certainly sets it up in the right way. And what has been very interesting uh, and also another wonderful part of serving on this commission is having the opportunity to work with nine wonderful people uh, from all over the country, uh, different professions, different religions, different uh, philosophies, uh, different politics. And yet um, everyone that I have met and served with came to this commission with a passion for religious freedom, 
and for helping people that are persecuted around the globe uh, to be given this right. So, you know, what we have found is that we stay on topic. <laughs> we talk about what we're supposed to be working on. And, um, you know, there, of course, we haven't been meeting in person at all uh, for the last year. But when we did, five conversations, maybe before or after the meeting, um, uh, and, and those were kept still civil and on a very personal level. But it was like once we walked into the room and once we sat down at that table, um, our roles were redefined. And you know, what is really helpful uh, is because of our differences, they bring these different perspectives to the table on the countries, on issues that we talk about, on our briefings. And it really adds, it adds a, a great deal of depth to uh, to our knowledge and to how we move forward. And uh, our annual report is a great example because uh, as the country reports are written uh, and then brought to us, you know, we read them if we have any edits, if we have any issues or questions. But then ultimately we vote on accepting that country report as it's written. And generally, uh, you know, nine times out of 10, we all agree on it. But occasionally you'll have a commissioner that has a very strong feeling about a, a particular aspect of that report. And they're given the option to write their statement, their comment um, at the end of the report. And I think that's good. Because it's, it's like no one is being disregarded or disrespected or ignored. And so, you know, it doesn't matter how, how much you try to have a unanimous or 100%. There's always going to be a, a variance out there. And to me, that really enriches. Um, it, it enriches our conversations about these countries. It helps build a better sense of knowledge about the countries. And uh, at the end of the day, I think everyone leaves feeling that they have been heard. I love that. Well, uh, Chair Manchin, I want to, you, you just referenced uh, the, the report. Uh, you surf, uh, last week released their 2021 report on international religious freedom. And I want to ask you how um, the COVID-19 pandemic affected international religious freedom uh, globally. Well, it impacted the world uh, much as it has impacted us. I mean, we see it as a kind of a microcosm here in the United States, but um, it has truly been a pandemic around the world. And what we carefully monitored is we know the same way we did here. You restrict activities, you restrict restricted functions, restricted things that people could or should do uh, for health purposes. And that's what we should do. So that's what we watched. And countries pretty much followed those same kinds of, of rules. However, there's always those countries that will take that um, and use it to actually discriminate or persecute a particular religion. So if you're going to make a rule, then it should be for... Every, everyone in that country. 
And so, of course, what you started seeing were in some countries you had this discrimination where one minority was not allowed to do anything. Others were or they were shut down completely. Others weren't. And and they could use that as their excuse that it was. And the other thing we found, unfortunately, is that countries would use um, minority religions to blame the virus. They would uh, say that a particular religion caused the virus to happen or they were responsible for the spread of the virus. So it um, you had mixed um, cases. Now, one of the good things that happened from this is, of course, we made the recommendation, as did the State Department and others, that certainly prisoners of conscience, uh, people that were imprisoned for no other reason than practicing their faith should be released from prison uh, because, you know, the prisons were just a breeding ground for the virus. And in some cases, countries did release um, prisoners, of, uh, of religious prisoners of conscience, which was a good thing, of course. Then other countries... Uh, not only continued to arrest, but would put the prisoners of conscience in some of the worst prisons or the worst areas of a prison. Um, So again, it was just uh, in some cases they followed and followed the rules. And then in others, they used that as a, just as an added means of persecution. So now as we are hoping that with the vaccine, uh, that things will continue to to get better. We will continue to monitor because countries will start releasing restrictions and we will want to watch carefully to make sure that uh, they're released across the board equally. You, Surf, put out some excellent um, kind of one-pagers and, and updates on this that I relied heavily upon in my uh, advocacy over the past year. So to our listeners, I would commend those um, resources that that USERF uh, has put out. And again, just really grateful for for those uh, helpful um, resources. Well, you're, one of the things I would add, Chelsea, uh, that made that possible is because we could not travel. Uh, so our staff and our research, and we could put uh, money out we could use money that we would have used for travel to uh, support research projects. And so USERF was able to do more hearings, more briefings, more of those fact sheets, more country reports, uh, which have been very helpful. And both NGOs and and civil societies have uh, been very appreciative at the information because obviously we always assure that it's very factual Uh, verifiable. And uh, so that has been, actually, I think has even brought maybe more attention to you, sir, because we have been doing more publishing and and virtually hosting more of these webinars and meetings to uh, educate people on these different issues. That's a. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a that's a helpful silver lining to the way that the pandemic changed the work of of USERF. So that's great to know. Uh, I want to you know make make our listeners aware that 
one of the central aspects, and I would certainly say this is the the thing that usually uh, garners the most headline-grabbing attention, are really your work exposing some of the world's worst violators of religious freedom. Uh, and you do this through uh, the lists, both countries of particular concern, as well as uh, what you call a special watch list. Um, can you give us a few states that are on the CPC list and a few others that are on the special watch list that we need to be aware of? Yes, I just happen to have that in front of me because <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to leave anyone off the list, uh, bad or good. Yeah. So um, the the countries that were already a CPC that we designated for another year um, are Burma, China, Eritrea, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan. And then uh, we also uh, designated Russia, Syria, and Vietnam. Now, those are the CPC countries. And then um, for the um, special watch list, two countries that were already on the list, Cuba and Nicaragua. And then uh, we added Afghanistan, uh, Algeria, Azerbaijan, Egypt, Indonesia, Karakistan, Malaysia, Turkey, and Uzbekistan. And then in addition to the CPCs and special watch list, we always, we have this group that are called entities of particular concern. And these are groups of people within a country that exert a tremendous amount of power. And that's one of the components. They have to, they have to really exert a certain amount of power in a country to be, um, to be listed. And for example, the Boko Haram. Uh, is one of those uh, entities. And um, they have, uh, some of them have very long, uh, very difficult to pronounce <laughs> names. Uh, but they, so they go by uh, things like the HTS and the, um, the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, which it goes by the ISGS. ISIS is certainly... Uh, one and um, and the Taliban. So these are also groups that are, you know, designated, highlighted as being certainly perpetrators of, uh, of religious freedom. So, Chair Manchin, we you talked about some of the countries that um, that your server is recommending uh, come onto these lists. But I wanted to ask you about some of the good news because the, the whole point of this exercise is, is to apply pressure and uh, provide a, an incentive structure for countries to, to engage in reforms. I mean, you, you mentioned Uzbekistan on the, on the special watch list. It was a CPC country a few years ago. It's made some, made some significant uh, reforms. Um, but but talk to us a little bit about Sudan because uh, this this year Sudan is uh, or Yusuf is recommending that Sudan not be on uh, not be a country of particular concern this year. I'm so glad you brought up because we do want to always highlight those countries which really make the effort uh, to change, and Sudan has done that in such a 
wonderful way. And of course, it came about with a change of government. And I think at the end of the day, for a country to really make the change and improvements that it's need, it has to have that government support and leadership. And so when this new government took over the Islamist regime that had been in there, they overthrew them. They promised. I mean, that was part of their promise was that they were going to um, to make religious freedom uh, possible and also uh, a lot of freedoms for their human rights, for their people. And they have done that. They have done it in uh, not only religious freedom, but in the realm of education, uh, rights of women, um, just in ways that truly is strengthening not only the country, but um, the people, the quality of life for the people that live there. And one of the things that I learned uh, from being a commissioner and being able to travel before COVID is that many of these countries uh, have very bad neighbors. And so being, being powerful is important being powerful enough that these countries that surround you don't try to come in and take you over or take you down. And so there is this hesitancy is the more you, the more freedoms you are giving people, then the interpretation sometimes is, is the less powerful you are. And, and you understand that. I mean, when we're talking to these government leaders and ministerial leaders um, you know, we tell them we understand that what they're doing is not easy uh, and it's certainly a challenge. But the fact that they are doing it is making such a difference uh, for the lives of their their citizens. And but, you know, it'd be like I come from a small state, West Virginia. You know, I would have to I would hate that when I got up every day, I had to one worry if Ohio or Pennsylvania uh, or Virginia were going to attack us or try to come in and take over uh, our state and, and, and force us to uh, adhere to certain beliefs or certain faith. So it's, um, I give these countries that struggle and but try to make a difference, I give them a lot of credit because they are doing it in the face of danger and challenges from all sides. Well, you, you come from a small state, but a, but a very proud state, I'll say, as a Texan. I, I don't think there's a, I mean, Texas and West Virginia are number one and number two in terms of, uh, in terms of state pride. But, you know, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to just sort of pick up on something that you, you, know, that you mentioned. I mean, I, you know, the, the way that the positive developments in Sudan, it obviously affects Sudanese citizens. But it, but it affects the region. It it and and it it begins to create positive uh, precedent, um, whether that's legal precedent, but also uh, you know also in Islamic law uh, that other states can can follow. And so yeah, I just I just want to you know commend you for uh, the work that you have have done uh, have done on this. It's it's tremendous to see uh, to see that development. Well, and it's a two way street, uh, Travis. What we have found, the countries that make the greatest improvements are countries that continue to reach out to us for support, uh, that reach out to us uh, to to talk about what they're trying to do and how they can implement it. 
what recommendations. Uh, they read our report. They um, they will, you know, interact with us. Bahrain particularly has every year uh, wanted to sit down with us after our report comes out to say, what what is it we need to do better? Uh, what can we do? You know, we've done this. And, but I say that to say this. These countries are still in a bad part of the world. And uh, so we know that you have to continue to monitor and they have to continue to strive to take it to another level. They, you know, that's what we say to them. We're not saying that everything is good. We're just saying you have done, you have come a long ways and we support you. So I'm grateful that we uh, talked about some positive developments over the past year, but I want to turn our attention to um, China. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is uh, obviously committing genocide, which the previous um, administration designated as a genocide against the, the Uyghur Muslims, and the Biden administration has kept the genocide determination and um, stated that it's an ongoing uh, genocide. Um you know, what What recommendations has USERF made um, about um, the Chinese Communist Party and their egregious um, actions towards uh, Uyghur Muslims, but also other um, ethnic and religious minorities in, in China? Yes, they are um, by far the most egregious in their uh, actions and systematic and ongoing. And you're right, it's not just Uyghurs, but certainly the Uyghurs, the slave the forced labor, the uh, genocide. And so a couple of things that USERF has tried to do, they keep we keep putting the message out, the reports out, that we can verify, always information that we can verify. We also try to bring on other countries uh, to support um, our condemnation of what they're doing, to ask other countries to step up and um, and also condemn them for their actions. That sanctions that are uh, put on China should be enforced. And now one of the one of the bigger things that we're doing is reaching out to corporations around the world that are buying products from China that we can prove are being made by this forced labor, uh, and saying to companies. You know, by doing this, you are condoning what is what is happening. And then along with also talking to companies, we're now we're going out to, to the people, to citizens and saying, do you really want to buy a product that's being made uh, by forced labor, people living in concentration camps uh, in China? And so just getting that knowledge out there, making people aware of just how egregious and horrible uh, this action is. And I think that China, I, I think it's beginning to, uh, China's beginning to notice that people are starting to listen. And of course, uh Vice Chair Tony Perkins and I were sanctioned. <laughs> but the interesting thing was, is that Tony and I were not the most outspoken on China, but we were the chair and the vice chair of this commission. And so they thought it made it stronger if they sanctioned us from traveling. I, on the other hand, was flattered because to me, 
I thought the message is getting there. They are getting this <laughs> message. And that is good. So I'm not planning a vacation in China. <laughs> well, it it was a it was a bit ironic with I mean the the sanctions were were retaliation against sanctions that we had put on on the 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 leaders of the genocide in in Xinjiang province, and they turned around and sanctioned a bunch of human rights heroes. Um, so uh -huh. it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, well, and that's the other thing. We there another recommendation would be not to uh, issue visas to these individuals that are a part of, that you know are leaders in this effort of genocide over there, to, uh, to not agree to meet with them, to not agree to work on other issues until they can start making changes in how they're treating the people of their country. In closing here, I, I want to ask you uh, to uh, do some reflection even beyond just this past year and, and the report we've been talking about, but but really, uh, you know, from your time when you first arrived in 2018 at uh, at the commission at USURF uh, to now uh, over this past year with so much turbulence because of the because of the pandemic, um, what have you seen in that time? Uh, that encourages you about the state of this fundamental human right globally? Well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, I'm just uh, overwhelmed by the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the expertise of the commissioners that I serve with. I mean, that the quality of people that you have serving and the staff, uh, the researchers, the people doing the work, I mean, that will continue to to keep things uh, verifiable, factual, and keep the world informed. So that's very important. The thing that probably surprised me the most is I didn't realize how much the world cared what the United States said about them. That this report that USER puts out, that comes out from in the State Department puts out, uh, these countries care what we say about them. And, and that sort of amazed me. I would have thought they'd have said, who cares? But they care. And, and, to, and to some, and so the positive side of that is it causes them to start really looking at what they're doing and reevaluating and changing. In many cases, changing their laws and giving people the freedom that they deserve. And then the last thing that uh, has just touched me so personally is the whole prisoners of conscience, the religious prisoners of conscience. When I think about our freedoms and um, that however I want to practice my faith and whenever I am free to do that, and I met people, um, not in life, but that literally were willing to sacrifice their life just to be able to practice their faith. And that just really overwhelmed me that they're, and their families, um, that their faith is that important, that they will stand up against a country. Uh, and they continue to do it. 
And so the fact that we have these religious prisoners of conscience project, we give these people a face and a name. And so hopefully as we talk about them, uh, as we put out news about them, as we continue to plead with these countries to release these prisoners, uh, at the end of the day, uh, my prayer is that we give them hope, that they are not forgotten, and that there are people out there that are really fighting and pushing uh, to get them released from prison. But uh, so all of that has been, has just enriched my life in ways that I can't even begin to express. But these uh, three years that I have served have been uh, certainly some of the most memorable years of my life. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, prisoners of conscience and in, in many ways that you serves uh, showcasing for the, for the country, for the world, Prisoners of Conscience reminds me a bit of how uh, the museum, a museum about the First Amendment and particularly about journalism uh, here in D.C., would often have a uh, journalist somewhere in the world, usually in an authoritarian regime, who had been imprisoned for uh, reporting what was happening there. Mm -hmm. And they would highlight a, a journalist who is imprisoned. And, you know, I would see it driving in downtown DC and, and it would just remind me of the importance of uh, the free press in this country and globally. And I think you serves work on prisoners of conscience and, and helping us see those men and women who, like you said, are, are laying it all on the line for this fundamental freedom is such a key reminder and something we at ERLC as religious freedom advocates really appreciate about uh, about the work of USERF. So it's it's neat to hear how that uh, personally impacted you too as a, as a commissioner. So I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Well, uh, Chair Manchin, thanks again for joining us here on Capital Conversations to talk about this uh, most recent annual report of USERF. Uh, I will I will link not only to that report, uh, but many other resources from our conversation so that those of you listening are able to uh, dig into, because I know, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a dense report, it's a helpful report. Uh, and so we have really just scratched the surface of the, of the work that USERF has has once again uh, done for our our country and uh, and for the state of this fundamental freedom worldwide. So, Chair Manchin, thanks again for joining us here on the podcast. Well, thank you. You know, we're talking about the First Amendment, but it's all a team effort. And so it is people like you and the work that you're doing that gets that message out and makes sure that people across our country and across the world sees exactly what is happening and how we can change and make it better. So thank you all for your work as well. Thanks for being on with us. Thanks for your hard work. Thank you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community who you think might benefit from it as well. And be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there in your podcast player, leave us a rating and a review. This really will help others find our show. Resources from today's episode, including the USERF annual report, are available in the show notes and, as always, at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week. Next week.